are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. Anything possible! Live from the most Lutheran state in the union, it's the 252. Sports Talk Radio is done by academics. I'm Chris Garrett. He's Chris Moore. And he's Sam Mulberry. Now, I think to be fair here, North Dakota per capita has more Lutherans, but Minnesota, if you include all the different Lutheran denominations, has about a million Lutherans. Mm-hmm. My family is currently attending a And Lutheran they are church. on the march. No, that's, <laughs> that's right. And why are we talking about that? Well, today we're going to do uh, really an interview episode where mm-hmm. we're talking to Angela Denker, who is uh, a Lutheran pastor. I think she serves a congregation here in town. Uh, but she's also the author of a new book from Fortress Press uh, called Red State Christians, Understanding the Voters Who Elected Donald Trump. What does that have to do with sports, you might be wondering? Well, we'll get to that in the second segment. Right. But uh, think Florida high school football, I think, is yeah. as much of a foreshadow as we need to get. So this will be a little bit shorter of a 252 with the wrappings around it, That's right. right. Maybe so would you say that this is more bumper music than episode? <laughs> It feels like oh, it. Oh, come on, man. No, so we're, we we're not, we're, we're not going to do a whole lot here before we get to our interview with Angela. We will end with some more suggestions for three to see. Uh, but first, we thought we should at least update our poll from not last week, but two weeks ago episode. We had asked, what are the four best sports years in history? We mm-hmm. had suggested, I think, 10 maybe total. I think Nine that's right, because we had one consensus here. Yep. And so here. I'm so fascinated because I, I actually haven't seen anything about so it. So there were two that were uh, in the top two the whole time. They kind of went back and forth. So number one, I think Christian Leitner. 1992. Yes. Really? Eked oh, out the wow. victory narrowly mm. over 2008, which was our consensus. Beijing Olympics, great tennis year, uh, among some uh, helmet catch, among right. some other things going on. But 1992 and 2008 were always in the lead. Interesting. Yeah, I don't think we're all surprised by 2008. 1992. Um, I'm a little surprised, but that's, yeah. yeah, it's a good one, though. I think the dream team argument is pretty, that, and pretty the dream team. Very that, that was also yep. it. Yeah. So we then, I don't know how to do this, but we wound up with a three-way tie for the last two spots. Wow. Okay. Which may suggest that we need a few more votes to help sort this out. That's exactly what that means. But one way or another, we wound up with three. So I'll leave it to you two to decide which two, uh, because I have two of these nominations. 1972, which I suggested because of Title IX, the very complicated Munich Olympics, uh, and a few other things. Uh, 1980, which is, of course, Miracle on Ice, mm-hmm. uh, Eric Haydn's Olympics. I'm hating this so No Moss, <laughs> and then Sam's pick, 1984. Oh, thank you. Okay, that was the only which, one I was. was kind of in the peak of many of your favorite athletes, the greatest NBA draft ever, the LA Olympics, Mary Lou Retton, it's, uh, there's a et cetera, things, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So 72, 80, and 84, do you two want to sort this out, or do we, do we cram have, a fifth I, head onto this particular Mount Rushmore? I have a strong preference for two of these. Was one of them 1984? Yes. Okay, then that's, I'm good. I'll let you pick the other one. I just fine. want 84 on this. We, we can take 84. Yeah, I, I think 84 needs to be on there. And then as much as I love the Miracle on Ice yeah. and Eric Hyden, I feel like that's the thinnest of the three years. Yeah. And I think 72, 72 clearly sure. is ahead of I think there needs to be a 70s. I think yeah. we got a little vote splitting with the 70s. Yeah. Because, I mean, the, we had 73. We had 74. 
75. Right. We have another. We had at least yeah, three. Yeah, we had 72, 73, 75. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, they all got votes, too. They're all worthy contenders. So um, we, We're going to do an EST episode at some point where we break down the voting of this because this is pretty interesting. <laughs> I, I think it's fascinating, people. So that's it. 1972, 1984, 1992, 2008 are your Mount Rushmore. Honorable mentions, 1980, which raises the question, mm-hmm. Chris Moore, political scientist, yes. if you were to add a fifth president to Mount Rushmore, who should it be? Because, of course, it's almost 100 years old now. It was a product of its time. We've had a few presidents since then. Well, okay, that's that's my first question. Can I draw from the entire catalog, or does it need to be since Mount Rushmore was erected? I think Um, you can draw on anything. You can do the whole catalog. It seems odd to disregard almost 90 years of presidents, but, you know. Can we have a uh, 252 EST crossover, and I will pitch this question to my EST colleagues? Okay, I, yeah. I think that's fair. All right, there, there's good. not even you don't want to like throw out a few nominees here. Well, yeah, I'll throw one. a few nominees. Sure. Yeah. I think um, uh, I, I think Madison would be worthy of consideration. No, I, whoa! Pres- I'm sorry. I, can we can we just do post 1928 or whatever? Yeah. Actually, was finally finished. Like I, I think it's odd to disregard and say like it stops with Teddy Roosevelt. And there, there's been no one since then that merits inclusion on Mount Rushmore. Oh sure, yeah, I think we could. I mean, I, mean, I but I, my, I was starting from. I, I would also question John Ma- or James Madison as a president too. Like I, I'm not <laughs> interested. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. I guess we have to have this. No, this cross. is great. This is. I'm great. just saying, like, if you look on like presidential ranking, he is not often highly rated on on, on any of them. Fair those. enough. Okay. I love um, the idea. Thinking of the sports crossover that like. If you were thinking about this, you could think about FDR just as like one of those people who accumulates enough stats just because of the number of years he was president. Well, I, 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 he's so the top three anytime this ranking happens yes. are Washington, Lincoln, and FDR. Right. Oh, I'm not right. saying yeah, only for is, that, but I love if we're making an analogy. Like, is he somebody who just like accumulates enough where yeah, he has he a long, it up. Yeah, yeah, yep. sort of a George Blanda type where he's Harold Beans kind of. That's right. The he's, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I, so I put you, you on the spot. So you, cu- I, you cut me off. Okay. I was starting from the beginning of our presidents, right, like presidents that I'm we sorry. ought to consider. Yep. Um, I was going to work my way up to the present. Um, I would think it'd be fascinating to put. To, to have the conversation about FDR only because we're fi- we're really finally seeing people who lived through both FDR and also the wave of FDR-influenced presidencies. Yes. I'm thinking Stephen Skoranek here, right. sort of in waves of presidential influence, um, that that generation is now passing from the scene as voters. And mm-hmm. there's still a strong visceral reaction to the New Deal um, in American politics, right? I mean, Newt Gingrich is and the emergence of the Tea Party even is a reaction to the New Deal. And sure. it's a reaction and, – and, and Reagan's presidency is a repudiation of – in many ways of, of FDR. And so I think if you said we're going to put FDR on Mount Rushmore, then you also have to have this conversation of, well, do we have him next to Ronald Reagan? So I would propose the compromise solution, which is you put Reagan on, you obliterate Teddy Roosevelt and put the right Roosevelt on there. And that's your Mount Rushmore. That would cost a lot more money. It would. It would also and probably desecrate surgery the of some kind. Yeah. 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 Um, wow. I. You're assuming we're going to just carve these out of stone. Maybe it'll just be some be carbon fiber thing we put together. Oh, I, oh actually, I, I like inflatable the, balloon. That's right. <laughs> um, no, I like kind of the, the the Biggie Tupac model, where it's like a hologram that is superimposed above the. Oh above yeah, the mountain. and then they that's another talk. Mount Rushmore we need to do at yeah. some point. <laughs> Okay. Well, we should also we have do, gone far afield. You know, I also want to do a Mount Rushmore of presidential athletes at some point. Now, to be fair, now they're that, mostly now, golfers. Now, now, Teddy would probably be up there. Teddy would definitely be up there. I, I think Barack Obama probably is a good enough pickup probably. basketball player slash golfer that he goes on there. Probably um, probably Gerald Ford. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, wouldn't that be definitely. Yeah. 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 
The, the question then becomes like, is it during their presidency or is it yes. at, during their lifetime? That, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, Sam. This was actually meant to be a bumper. That's all right. This, this is amazing. Kind of all right. We, we just can't get together and not talk about such things. But we're looking forward to hearing from someone else, not just ourselves, when we come back after the break to talk to Angela Denker, author of Red State Christians. This week in sports history. New York, New York, September 26, 1978. On the eve of the Yankees-Dodgers World Series, federal judge Constance Baker Motley ruled against baseball commissioner Bowie Kuhn, who banned women in, like Sports Illustrated writer Melissa Ludke from entering locker rooms to cover the previous year's fall classic. Bloomington, Minnesota, September 28, 1969. Joe Camp throws an NFL record seven touchdown passes as the Vikings steamroll the Baltimore Colts in their 1969 home opener. Camp's team will go 12-2 but lose the last AFL NFL Super Bowl to the Kansas City Chiefs. Seoul, South Korea, October 1, 1988. The U.S. women win the 4x100-meter track relay, giving Florence Griffin Joyner her third gold medal at the Seoul Olympics after she swept the 100-meter and 200-meter sprints. Los Angeles, California, September 25th, 2016. Near the end of a 67-year career, broadcaster Vin Scully's last regular season home game at Dodger Stadium ends with his call of the division-clinching walk-off home run by light-hitting Charlie Culberson. Oh, and one to Charlie. Swung on a high fly ball to deep left field to Dodger Ben Yankees. Would you believe a home run? And the Dodgers have clinched the division and will celebrate on schedule. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Welcome back. Our second segment on the 252 is usually a time where either the three of us have a conversation, but even better, we get to bring someone in. And today we actually physically have someone to come in. It's not by phone or Skype or anything. We'd like to welcome Angela Denker to the 252. Angela, thanks for driving up to Bethel today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. 20-minute drive, not too bad. <laughs> yeah, so as we mentioned in the first segment, Angela is the author of a new book from Fortress Press called, let me get the subtitle right, Red State Christians, Understanding the Voters Who Elected Donald Trump. So we'll talk about the book in just a second and your your methods, what you were trying to do with that, and especially one chapter, which has to do with football, which obviously connects to what we're doing here, but I think some larger questions too. Mm -hmm. But whatever interview we do, we always like to start by asking, what is your sports story? And it is something you talk about in the book. You have a chapter on football we'll get to, and you pause to say you grew up very much in a, in a very athletic family, right? Your dad was, was a baseball player? Right? He played football at nearby Augsburg. Ah, okay. <laughs> Division Rams. three yeah. standout. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so what, what were you an athlete yourself? Were you around athletes, uh, a fan? Uh, and then we'll get to journalism too as part of your story. So we'll, we'll go to your sports writing background too. Yeah, I I love that you guys are doing this, first of all, because I think sports like opens so many doors of commonalities between so many of us. And so for me, um, growing up, I was the oldest. And for a while, I think I was kind of like my dad's boy. <laughs> so he's mm. teaching me how to throw a spiral when I'm four, you know. Um, and then my brother was born, so we both got into it. Um, but I played everything growing up. I was, you know, and 
in that generation, sort of among the first generation of girls to play really competitive youth sports. Mm -hmm. So I was in traveling basketball, traveling fast pitch softball. I pitched. Um, In high school, I was a three-sport athlete at nearby Maple Grove. Um, I played volleyball and basketball. And was a captain on the track and field team. I ended up getting a little burnt out of softball um, because Mm -hmm. of all the off-season fast-pitch training. Um, But sports were just this common thread throughout my life that sort of, like, kept me focused. Um, I'm sure you guys hear from a lot of your student-athletes, you know, sports kind of kept me on the, like, straight and narrow in high school because I always had practice coming up. I always had games. Um, It kind of kept me grounded. And then in college, um, I played club volleyball at the University of Missouri. So we traveled around to different colleges, um, really competitive. When I moved to Florida, um, I was a beach volleyball player and spent a lot of time on the beach with future Olympians as well as, you Mm. know, some other people. And I certainly wasn't a future Olympian, but (laughs) in the same circles. So you mentioned going, oh, I'm sorry, Chris. I have to ask about Mm. that. So is there a beach pecking order how did you end up on in games with future olympians on, on, the, on the beach <laughs> yeah um so i lived in i worked so another part of my sports story is that i was a sports writer so while i was playing beach volleyball i was also a sports writer for the naples daily news in okay. florida um and so we had actually like a fort myers beach group mm, of people who okay. played and one of the girls, um, Brooke Youngquist, who I played with, um, she ended up being in the Olympics. Um, so I don't know. I guess we just kind of you meet the right people. Gotcha. You kind of start proving you can play decently and you start getting the text for the weekly game. And <laughs> I picture it's like a sandy version of the Rucker. Like where you, you like there's like there's certain rules to get into the right games. To yeah. Be with the right people. And OK. Yeah. And there's different levels, you know, open, double A, single A. Like, sure. I think I won a single A tournament once and never quite, quite got to the open level. <laughs> OK. So to connect a couple of dots here, Angela, you end up writing for doing sports for a newspaper paper in Florida, but you had gone to Mizzou for one of the really good journalism schools. So can you tell us a little bit about <clears throat> how you got interested in doing journalism and then why did that lead to sports writing? Was that something you had sought as a journalism student? Was it just the opening came and you took it? Yeah, I mean, I definitely see like the thread of the Holy Spirit throughout all this, like bringing mm-hmm. me through all these different connections. Um, but when I started at Mizzou, I was really interested in doing political journalism. Um, and so I actually served a congressional internship with Jim Ramstead, who used to be the rep um, up here for the Northwest Suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I was working for the local paper there in Columbia, Missouri, um, I didn't have a car in college. I only had a bike. And so they're like, well, you know, we can't really put you on the politics beat because you're going to have to drive. So how about you cover sports? Mm. (laughs) Which I had, you know, been this athlete. And in high school, I was the sports editor as a junior of the paper. And so that was super natural for me. And then um, the person who covered Mizzou sports, I started out covering you know, some high school stuff. The person who covered Mizzou sports ended up leaving and they kind of need someone to fill the position. And then I got a job at the bigger local paper making like seven bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. But I got to cover the final four in college. I got to go to, you know, the Big 12 tournament um, when Mizzou was in the Big 12. So just starting getting all these opportunities. Um, and at the time, Missouri was a really rich place for sports writing. Um, Joe Posnanski, who's now, you know, a noted mm-hmm. author, he was... Um, writing for the Kansas City Star, as was Jason Whitlock. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to be sort of in these circles as a 19, 20-year-old college kid with these incredible journalists. And as a result, I um, graduated a semester early 
instead of going to Washington, um, fell in love, uh, moved to Kansas City briefly, and then moved to Florida, which was where my sports writing career really took off. So all jobs have pluses and minuses. What was your, what was the most meaningful or favorite part of being a sports writer? Uh, well, on a funny note, you know, I always miss the pregame buffets, <laughs> you know, and just like the privilege of you go to, I covered the Super Bowl in 2009 and like, you know, you get a free, free transportation to the game, free seats, free everything, you know, just incredible access. You're in the locker room after the game. And so to to leave that and then go back to being a fan afterwards is really hard. Like, sure. oh, you go to a game and you have to wait in line, you have to buy food. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think on another level, like my favorite part about sports writing is that um, athletes, you know, for the most part, are pretty down to earth, mm. um, and they have all had to work, you know, really hard physically to get to the level that they're at in their sport. Um, so when I had the opportunity to really speak with them and tell their stories, um, it, it, athletes are really coached now, you know, to not be super honest and to not say things <laughs> that are inappropriate. But when I could get into that one-on-one interview or maybe be with people who hadn't been quite coached yet, um, it was really special to get to tell their stories, to hear their truths, and a lot of times to hear about their faith, mm-hmm. which was really powerful mm-hmm. for me. Hmm. So kind of the next step for us then it gets us closer to the book is at a certain point you discern speaking of the holy spirit a calling to ministry right and went to seminary and are now a lutheran pastor um can you just tell us a little bit about how you go from sports right because i know you say in the book this always comes up right you, your congregation your seminarians want to know what how, what's a short version of your story of how you go from journalism to pastoral ministry yeah that's always a, a great question a great story I mean, um, I remember being on the bus to the Super Bowl and feeling like, this is so amazing. This is like the pinnacle of sports writing, but also still feeling in the back of my mind this call to the church and this call to ministry. Mm. And so I thought, gosh, if I'm feeling it, like at this moment, this is something I really need to listen to. Um, My dad's Catholic, you know, even though he went to Augsburg, (laughs) which is a Lutheran school. Um, And so when I, and he's a big sports guy, when I told him I was leaving sports writing to go to seminary, he was just like, what why (laughs) why would you ever leave this job why would you do this um and for me it was a lot of different things but for so many of us who are called to work in the church or work in ministry you know it's i wouldn't have left sports writing for anything besides that um yeah so and then i had this i went to uh, luther seminary and now have sort of and when I first went to seminary, I was still covering football on the side and writing for the Star Tribune and doing some a lot of sports stuff. And then when I went to Las Vegas, I was covering football in Vegas. And ultimately, that was during my pastoral internship. I just had to, like, cut the cord because <laughs> I found myself reverting to still telling people, well, yeah, I'm a sports writer and, like, I also do stuff in the church. And I found myself needing to be more outspoken about like yeah i do serve the church and not sort of use sports writing on the side as Mm -hmm. my crutch (laughs) Mm -hmm. but there's still a connection i mean in the book you mentioned that uh sweat to me was as incense to a priest comforting (laughs) me and bringing me closer to the holy presence so we've talked about the kind of religiosity of sports before Mm -hmm. so that would mean i kind of underlined that but i was especially struck that you say that as you think about these two professions you've had one thing, two things are in common. Uh, both are made for storytellers. I mean, the stories of athletes and obviously mm-hmm. pastors tell stories. But no one loves a redemption story more than a sports fan or a Christian. So yeah. if you don't mind reflecting on that a little bit, I mean, like, um, hopefully the redemption part of Christianity doesn't need a lot of unpacking here. But where do you see 
redemption in sports? Uh, I mean, is that something you even feel like you draw and still as you write sermons or as you teach students or, or the other parts of your job as a pastor? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I did write a piece um, for a theological journal kind of like going into all of this about this redemption piece. So it is something that's really important to me. And it's um, so if anyone wants to look at that, it's in the journal called uh, Word and World. Mm-hmm. Um, but so my husband's a Kansas City Royals fan. He's from Missouri. And I stood by his side all these years. He had season tickets. They were terrible, you know, years <laughs> and years. And every year, you know, opening day comes in Missouri. And usually it's it's spring's pretty nice in Missouri and everybody's there and there's this hopefulness and there's this belief in these new players, you know, coming up from the farm system and this spirit of opening day, you know, it's this, it's this hope, it's this expectation. Um, and so I sat through all that. And then 2015, um, a couple days after my second son is born, <laughs> my in-laws are in town, the Royals win the world series <laughs> and, you know, how much more did that mean than, you know, if it's like a team like the Yankees and, you know, oh, they won again. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. maybe it's also, you know, growing up a Vikings fan or mm-hmm. <laughs> just like seeing. So I really relate to in sports. Um, and as a sports writer, you have so much freedom to like tell the story as opposed to, you know, being a straight news writer. It used to be anyway. <laughs> um, you got to stick to the facts a little more. Um, but in sports, you really get to tell that. And that thread of of life after death, I think, is really closely tied to, like, winning after losing, you know, mm-hmm. or the comeback stories of athletes who are injured or they, you know, have a tough childhood. I covered Edron James a great deal. Um, and he grew up just outside Naples. Naples, of course, super affluent community, but... Edra and James grew up in a really poverty-stricken community, and so many athletes come up that way. Um, and that's a, th- that's become such a unique story in America, too. And I think we hold on to it because it's the American dream, um, but it's also tied to Christianity in the sense that God is a God of the possible and God is a God of hope. Mm-hmm. Mm. Absolutely. Well, let's pivot to the book, as we mentioned a few times. Absolutely. And, and talk about, we'll start with chapter six, um, which is called Winners and Losers, colon, Trump Football and Christianity. Um, I feel like they're kind of different layers we have to work through. So let's just start yes. with what does football mean in at least this corner of Florida or generally the state? We live in a state where the Vikings are the number one pro team, Big Ten team. High school football is pretty big on Friday nights. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we probably understand the significance of football as it would mean in a place like Florida. As a cultural artifact. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. how would you describe that to people who maybe don't live in quite so much a football hotbed? Well, and I'll say, you know, Florida and Texas, I kind of interchangeably, um, but across much of the South. Um, Mm -hmm. So in Florida, not only is there fall Friday night football, but there is spring football (laughs) in the high school. So that I think is emblematic of just the ways that football is so dominant. Uh Um, And, you know, if you're a star football player in high school in Florida, even in smaller high schools, you're not playing baseball. Mm-hmm. You're not playing basketball. You're playing mm-hmm. spring football and you're hitting the weight room all winter, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's a huge part of it. But also um, there's a sense in which football, and I think we see this even on the NFL level, that football for a lot of people is tied to Americana in mm-hmm. a way that say the NBA is mm-hmm. not, you know? Um, and so football has also, um, been 
I think for conservatives, and we even see this um, with Donald Trump, that that football has this place in American tradition that's considered sacred. Um, but then when you see people start to challenge, you know, maybe how are athletes treated in mm-hmm. football or how how does football affect athletes' bodies? How does it affect their minds with CTE and brain injuries? Mm-hmm. Um, you see that, that for some people that challenges like America and apple pie in a way that, I mean, surprisingly, even baseball doesn't because baseball is like the American sport. But football, just that one game a week, Sundays, I think it it hits something in us as Americans and maybe even as Christians that other sports don't. Yeah, I mean, your chapter starts with Colin Kaepernick. Um, yesterday was the second anniversary of the one of the big Sundays where we had the take knee protest all over the NFL. You know, one thing I was curious about, since you've covered sports, been to a Super Bowl, like you said, 2009, so it's been yeah. 10 years since that. Yeah. I mean, have you seen change in athletes' willingness to engage? I mean, was, is that an isolated instance? Do, we, do you see this more often than you did, say, 5, 10, 20 years ago, of athletes using that platform instead of having this well-coached, non-controversial, neutral story that you also encountered as a journalist? Yeah, I mean, and I think that the, that question lifts up the way in which sports have always been like a microcosm of so many bigger issues in America. Mm-hmm. So as a sports writer and as, you know, somebody who – has been around athletes and coaches a lot um, in the same way that American Christianity has been shaped both by conservative evangelical white traditions Mm -hmm. and also by a strong Mm African-American social justice tradition that we see in like the civil rights movement or abolitionism. Um, And you see that in sports Mm -hmm. echoed as well. You know, you see this strong, um, white conservative Christianity that is lifted up in things like fellowship of Christian athletes. Um, right. One of the coaches I interview in the book had been a college football coach and then became uh, in charge of FCA in South Florida. Um, and so that's a huge, you know, in this thread of conservative values being imparted by coaches and prayers and all those things I think have been good for athletes. Um, but then you also see, and I, I have seen a slight rise in this even in recent years among women athletes. Um, we sort of saw it during um, the Women's World Cup and the women's team push for equal pay. Um, and you see sort of this other movement in sports. And so I think for, for me as a Christian and even as a pastor, um, sports really reminds me that both of those elements within Christianity are blessed by Jesus, you know, and Mm. we have to, that Jesus holds within himself both of those movements as well, and we need to figure out how to implement them in our church and our country. So you've alluded to a couple of important Christian religious traditions that intersect with NFL, with football. Let's let's start with white evangelical conservative Christianity. How does, how do football and that kind of way of following Jesus interact in a place like Florida at the level of like high school sports. It also seems like football itself is a f- secondary sacrament. So especially for evangelicals. So yeah. can you talk about how those things relate in Florida? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, so this coach that I talked to, Bill Kramer, he's such a cool guy. Um, and he's somebody I've known a long time as a sports writer. Um, he's a graduate of Liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really like indoctrinated for a long time with conservative Christian values. Um, He sees football as uniquely adaptable to faith because he says football is the only sport where you have players who don't touch the ball at all. And their only job is to serve. So he's talking about the linemen and just like the service aspect of football. And I thought that was a really neat um, take. He also sees football as this unique way to 
to do ministry um, predominantly, you know, in his case as a football coach, to men and to young men who are drawn to like violence, drawn to, and I, I see this in my youngest son even a little bit, like he likes to have contact. He <laughs> likes to mix it up. Um, so Coach Kramer sees it as like, these guys are never maybe going to like go to Bible study on their own, but but this is a place that we can do ministry in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found that really powerful for him. He runs a Bible study for local coaches and there's been a movement for a long time in American public schools of, you know, we can't pray in school, but football and sports have always been the exception to that. Mm-hmm. And you see a lot of coaches like leading prayers before games. And I think in a lot of cases, you know, they find ways to do it that do not exclude players who aren't Christian. Of course, there's been instances that where that hasn't been the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in general, it's been this unique story of religiosity in public schools. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so you talked to him. He's a high school football coach, right, mm-hmm. Naples? But I think you also talked to one of his assistants. Yes. an African-American coach named yes. uh, Stanley Bryant. Yes. Right? Yep. So, I mean, an interesting theme in both of their stories seems to be here the role of race within mm-hmm. yeah. football and religion, mm-hmm. for that matter. Um, can you talk a little bit about in a place like Naples, Florida, which you've described as an affluent community, um, it seems like there are some interesting issues here of race and class. Um, how do coaches like this navigate, either a white head football coach or his African-American assistant? Yeah, I think um, race is so much under the surface. And sports, again, give us like a microcosm, almost laboratory to study mm-hmm. these bigger racial issues that affect all of us in our country. Um, I think that on the positive side, sports is a place where um Black football players and white football players have learned to work together and, you know, um, see the value in one another. And particularly for white football players and white coaches, you know, as football teams became integrated, um, learning to sort of see racism maybe where it's been in the past and break down some of those walls. Of course, we've all seen, you know, the movies, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Remember the Titans, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. There's some great stories that come out about that um but it still exists right and so um like in naples um naples is a big retirement community so lots and lots of money from the midwest from canada from the east coast coming down to naples um but the football players at naples high school which has been a florida state power for a long time um don't necessarily come from the million dollar houses you know a lot of them um are Haitian immigrants, mm. a lot of them mm. um, African-American. Uh, Stanley Bryant, who was a standout quarterback at Naples, had grown up in nearby Arcadia, which is a very poor inland you know, community in Florida. Florida, like California, you get a little bit further away from the coast and it looks a lot different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the affluence fades pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for Coach Kramer, one way that he could relate to those players is that he didn't really grow up with his dad in his life. And his dad was abusive to his mom. His dad took off. He wasn't around. And so for a lot of the players who have to grow up without their dads in their lives for various reasons, um, Coach Kramer can relate to them. And that's mm. a powerful way that they find places of connection. So we, um, 
in th- we, 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 I mean, I'm interested in um, the connection here now with with it, with Trump. Mm-hmm. So yeah. as the political scientist here. I want to ask ask this. Um, we know that in excess of 80 percent of evangelicals voted for voted for Donald Trump, um, and a lot of the people that you studied in Florida um, were evangelicals. Is there some way that football maps onto evangelicalism or conservatism or even sort of the national populism of Donald Trump? Yeah. Um, I mean, we saw this play out with Colin Kaepernick, right? Mm-hmm. And in a really interesting way, because I went to also, I spent a lot of time in central Pennsylvania, Appalachia, mm-hmm. and huge Steelers fans, you know. Sure. But after... Um, the Kaepernick protests happened, you saw people who were very supportive of Donald Trump, um, like prominently burning their jerseys, burning their NFL jerseys on social mm-hmm. media. Um, mm-hmm. Some of my relatives in Missouri who had been big Chiefs fans, they, for a season, they're like, we're not watching the Chiefs anymore, which is a big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but guess what? The next year, everybody was watching the NFL again. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so it kind of didn't stick. Um, and I think it's also interesting to see... Um, that for for Trump, his natural allies, a lot of them were the team owners who yeah. tend to be, you know, white conservative men like himself. Um, and then there was the debate over is Tom Brady on this side mm. or that side? Which right. side is <laughs> this, you know, super famous white quarterback on? So he found himself in the middle a little bit. Um, and I was a little bit saddened to see um the trajectory of the way that the Kaepernick protests went, because I think that there was a legitimate message about um, the ways that in some ways the NFL's predominantly black athletes. And in some ways they have been taken advantage of. They make a small fraction of what the owners do. They're putting their bodies and their lives on the line week after week. You know, college football players don't get compensated. These schools make tons of money. And then Mm -hmm. these players get hurt for the rest of their lives. I actually wrote a story about that for Sports Illustrated in like 2006. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we're still talking about it. It's still an issue. So anyway, I was surprised to see the way the Kaepernick protests turned out because Kaepernick then signed this big deal with Nike. It kind of gets corporate, you mm-hmm. know, and then you've got corporations mm-hmm. on the right, corporations on the left. And you have some football players who are still trying to talk about like, what does this mean for social justice in our league? But it I think that message got lost in corporate battles. Interesting. So that hints at something that seems like a tension for you, maybe for a couple of reasons running through, which on the one hand, like to me, a clear strength of the book as a historian is your commitment to empathy. Mm -hmm. Like you want to reveal the Trump voters that you talk to as three-dimensional people who don't necessarily fit the stereotypes that we might map onto them ourselves or see in the media. Yeah. Um, On the other hand, you say at a couple points, including your introduction and conclusion, you don't want a whitewash story. Mm -hmm. There are moments where you feel like something, to use the word you just used, is not legitimate. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of justice. It's Mm -hmm. a matter of fairness. It's a matter of hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. Um, Or in the beginning, you say that you you want these stories to come together, and sometimes that produces cohesion, but sometimes it produces combustion. So Both as a journalist, I'm sure that's an issue journalists often wrestle with. You're not just telling the facts. I mean, there's a story there and there's interpretation. interpretation. Mm -hmm. But also maybe here, especially because you're both a journalist and a pastor, how do you, I'll frame it this way, how do you decide when it's time to maybe pause, I'm telling the facts, I'm giving this person's point of view to say, I need to say something here as a journalist, as a Christian, as a pastor, because it does feel like there are a few moments in the, maybe less so in this chapter, but in other chapters where you have to say, I I need to say something about this. I'm bothered by this. How how did you do that when you were writing the book? 
Ah, prayer. (laughs) 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 Um, But I had a really hard time wrapping up the sports chapter Mm. because Mm. there's so many positive instances I see where, you know, Coach Kramer is interacting with his athletes Mm. through Christianity. I see Stanley Bryant, you know, he comes to faith during an altar call at a funeral at a white Southern Baptist church in Florida, you know, um, and that faith like changed the rest of his life. He did a mission trip to South Africa, but then he ends the chapter by saying that he's sad because he's an assistant principal now at Naples. He's one of the few African-American administrators. Um, And after these Kaepernick protests happen, um, he said he feels like the other white coaches are just kind of, they don't want to talk about it. They mm. want to pretend like, you know, we football, we're focused on football, mm. which you can see. Um, but he's having to deal with, he feels like parents at the school, other, you know, students at the school, he's hearing all this, these racist comments directed towards him that he hasn't in the past. Mm. And so, you know, what does that say about um, what kind of effect Trump's presidency has had on issues of race, whether it's intentional on Trump's part or not, that followed, I think. So that was, I was like, how do I wrap this up? Because I'm seeing the positive impacts, but I'm also seeing this like man in front of me who's a football coach who doesn't feel that same support when it comes to dealing with people treating him differently because of his race. Right. Um, you've had a chance to do interviews like this. You were in the radio uh, last night with a local conservative talk station. Uh, you've been in churches, other groups. Uh, how has this book been received? What are you hearing from people who I assume are themselves politically diverse? How are they responding to what they read, what you have to say? Yeah, it's been really fun um, and a new adventure for me. And having been a hockey beat writer in the past, you know, I was prepared for getting beat up a little bit. <laughs> um, but I haven't liked too bad yet. Um, this past Sunday, I was at a church and this woman came up to me and she's like, I came to this and I was afraid it was going to be a Trump bashing. And it wasn't. <laughs> so you've got people in people I just want to know, is it pro-Trump? Is it anti-Trump? Mm. You know, and my whole point is just we've got to move beyond this obsession with talking about the person of Donald Trump. And we've got to talk about our, you know, issues as Americans, issues as Christians that existed before Trump and will exist after Trump. Yes. Um, so that's been my goal, like with the book. And I also sense there's really a hunger for hope. And for me, like the hope that comes through the book um, that I noticed that sometimes people who aren't, hmm people of faith or aren't driven by faith they're like where did you see that hope (laughs) and it for me it's really tied to the holy spirit that i saw in these unexpected places that were sometimes economically depressed um that there is this strand of hope of the holy spirit and that's what keeps me going so there's a redemption story here. Ah, uh, there's always mm. a redemption yeah, story, is. right? There's always an Easter. It's coming. Well, you end it with grace, which I thought was a very Lutheran way to resolve the story. Um, <laughs> Thanks. We should probably acknowledge Chris Moore. Uh, that we're sitting here the morning after uh, Nancy Pelosi announced at least an impeachment inquiry in the inquiry, House of Representatives. Yes. <laughs> and so as, as I won't ask you to prognosticate how that's going to go, but you have talked to a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 are facing another election in 2020. Um, I don't know if you have a reaction yet to the politics of the. How do you, whether it's the football coaches or anyone else, how do you think they're going to respond to the idea of an impeachment of Donald Trump at this point in 2019? I think um, a big thing that's operating right now is the lack of trust in news media. 
um, mm. and the reception of this news. So I even think of all the other times we've heard, like, this is the thing that's going to bring down Donald Trump. This is the thing. Um, this, it seems a little different. It seems different to me because I see some really centrist Democrats who were elected in 2018, um, even locally here, Dean Phillips, mm-hmm. who've been really pretty resistant to impeachment. And now mm-hmm. all of a sudden they're signing on to it. So I'm thinking maybe there's something there that we don't know about. Um, but I don't think that moves the needle, like especially in I've spent a lot of time in Wisconsin since the book came out. Wisconsin's going to be real decisive for mm-hmm. 2020. Um, and with Christians in Wisconsin, um, I also think about people I talked to in Pennsylvania, Ohio. I think for those voters, um, they were they were distinctive from the voters that were maybe moved more by social issues in the South. Um, the voters in the Rust Belt, I think the big message is going to be an economic message. And one of their big gripes that led them to Trump was he promised to drain the swamp. He promised to end corruption. I don't necessarily think they've seen a return on that. So the question is, is there going to be a Democratic candidate mm. who moves them economically or do they stay home? You know, there's so many things operating. Right, right, right. And Chris, like, this could become an election shock therapy episode at this point. Well, we so I want to make sure that, that if you have any questions yeah. here to follow up, you, you've got a chance to do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to um, to think about how both the church and um, and football, both as these communal activities, these 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 sort of social capital, social networking activities that still in a increasingly social capital light kind of America where we still really invest enormous resources in, right? Um, how that then becomes a conduit by which we communicate politically. And um, last time I looked, and I need to, we need to look at this again, some sports skew in certain partisan directions. An easy example of this would be NASCAR, which skews heavily conservative. Last time I looked at football, it was surprisingly bipartisan. Now, I'm sure that varies enormously by state. But could we imagine out of this um, out of this process, out of both nationalism but all, and populism, but also just um, conservatism, can football become a sort of a bastion of conservative politics more so than it is today? I think um, we kind of have yet to see. I think that that there's a dual track in football right now where athletes are tending to move one direction mm-hmm. and coaches are tending to move another direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but you still do have, I mean, Tim Tebow has a pretty big platform in conservative politics. Um, he's doing a lot of speaking around at conservative institutions. Um So I think that's possible. What I would really like to see, I like how you talked about, like, where do we find new places for social conversation Mm -hmm. (laughs) that happens not online? Um, So I think that sports can be a a place where people can break down barriers and are put into places with people who differ from them politically because we need more of those places in America. Mm -hmm. I think the local church can be a place for that, too. Um, So that's that's my hope, I guess. Well, we're Thanks. running short on time, Angela. It's been just a great conversation. I've appreciated it. But before we go, we should give you a chance to sell your book. I know you can find Red State Christians all over the place, but I know you also believe in local booksellers. Is there maybe here in town? I know we have a lot of listeners in the Twin Cities. Is there a place you want to send people to go pick up a copy of uh, Red State Christians? Huh. Well, I know they had a bunch at Milkweed, um, a local bookstore in downtown Minneapolis, but I think they sold out. <laughs> um, but it's a good sign. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Barnes & Noble all over the Twin Cities mm-hmm. have them, so you can pick it up locally there. Um, you can also buy it if you're a church or if you're a pastor. Um, 
churches can do bulk orders through Augsburg Fortress for 50% off. Mm, so that's an awesome deal. Small and groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a free discussion guide online at Augsburg Fortress for small groups. Um, and I've been so inspired by the discussions happening at churches. Um, and I think that that's, that's where a lot of my hope comes from, too. Well, and we'll certainly share a link at least to the Fortress Press page so you can find this if you don't know where else to look. But awesome. Angela, thanks for getting some time sharing your thoughts about all these interrelated topics. It's really thanks so rich. much. Thanks, you guys. Okay. Great We'll talk. be right back to close up this, this episode. Get in touch with the 252 by emailing us at livefromac2nd at gmail.com. All right. Thanks again to Angela Danker for giving us some time to talk about her book. Again, you can find this all over the place. It's called Red State Christians. Hopefully you'll hear more from her in the years to come. Very cool. Before we go, we thought we should do three to see. So we're looking ahead to the end of September into early October. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. But uh, Sam, start us off with October 1st and 2nd. All right. October 1st and 2nd mark the second match days of the group stage of one of my favorite major competitions, the UEFA Champions League. With 16 games over the course of two days, there should be plenty of good football. The matchup I'll be watching is last year's Champions League runner-up Tottenham Hotspur of the English Premier League against perennial Bundesliga powerhouse Bayern Munich. Chris? With five games left to play, the Twins' magic number is two. Mm. If the Twins can clinch the division, it will be their first since 2010. A key reason for their success, the Twins are the league's third-best hitting team according to OPS. Sam, what's OPS? On base plus slugging. One key question for the end of the Twins' regular season and beyond is the health status of Max Kepler, the Twins' strongest player, second strongest player in terms of war. Sam, what's war? <laughs> Wins above replacement. All right. How do you warp? Okay. Value over. Ah, you, okay. Nerd alert. I know it seems way too early for ice hockey, but NHL teams are in training camps and will soon be playing games that count. The Chicago Blackhawks and Philadelphia Flyers will have an especially long road trip to start their regular seasons. They face each other Friday, October 4th in the Czech capital of Prague. Hometown heroes include Flyers winger Jakub Borjak and Blackhawks prospect Dominic Kobelik. So that's three to see. We will be back again, not next week, but in two weeks with a more regular episode. We'll be talking about some current events, an article or two we've read, and maybe doing a Mount Rushmore, maybe doing something a little bit more future-facing instead, mm -hmm. to be determined. So, Chris, take us away. On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, uh, thanks for listening to us. You can always get a hold of us at livefromac2nd at gmail.com. And until we hear from you, go Royals. Hey, this is Sam Mulberry from the Live from AC Second Podcast Network. We have lots of great shows in the network this fall, like Election Shock Therapy, Bookish at Bethel, The 252, Tweet Victory, and maybe a few more. If you like what you're listening to, go on to the Apple Podcast app or Stitcher and subscribe to the Live from AC Second Podcast Network. It's free, and it helps us deliver every new podcast episode right to you. 
So subscribe, listen, and enjoy. And as always, you can reach us at livefromac2nd at gmail.com.